Well, at the core of this of this case is the question of how much does race count in decision-making processes in America? The court is saying it's time for a new era. Nick Anderson is a higher education reporter at The Post. He's been reporting on colleges that consider race in admissions. It's a policy based on decades of affirmative action precedent. And this week, the Supreme Court rejected that policy. And we're extremely strictly limiting the place that race and ethnicity have in these specific high-stakes admissions decisions. These decisions are highly charged. Right after Thursday's ruling, Yukong Mike Zhao showed up outside the court to celebrate. All children will no longer be treated as second-class citizens in college admission. Zhao is president of the Asian American Coalition for Education, a group that actively supported the lawsuit against this policy. The rulings preserve meritocracy, which is the bedrock of the American dream. Steps away, Christopher Banks was furious about the outcome. This opinion is highly regrettable, highly regrettable. He's director of education policy at the Urban League of Portland. And he was outside the court leading a group of high school students on a summer program in D.C. I myself benefited from Brown, Columbia, and Oxford. I benefited from an excellent education. I want the same for these students. So what are we to do now? What are we to do now? From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Elahe Izadi. It's Friday, June 30th. Today, I talk with higher education reporter Nick Anderson about what's next for universities after the Supreme Court's historic decision about how race is used in college admissions. So, Nick, the Supreme Court has ruled to restrict affirmative action, at least in the case of higher education. Can you explain how this ruling went and what are the key takeaways? The first point to make is that the court split ideologically along what is by now a pretty familiar fault line. The six justices that are in the conservative majority stayed in the majority here. The three justices that are in the liberal minority stayed in the minority here. The ruling came from the chief justice, John Roberts, and the six justices in the majority declared that the admissions programs at Harvard University and the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, had violated the equal protection guarantees in the Constitution and that, therefore, the colleges and universities... um, that practice this kind of admissions, race-conscious admissions, must revisit their practices and make sure they don't do that anymore. And Nick, who brought this challenge? Who sued these universities? The plaintiff in the case is a group called Students for Fair Admissions. It's a group that represents a number of people, uh, and among them are people who were denied admission to Harvard or UNC Chapel Hill. But it's really organized by a white man who is an anti-affirmative action activist named Edward Bloom. The opportunities 
must be the same regardless of your race or ethnicity. Edward Bloom, who's retired from a job in finance and living in Tallahassee, Florida, is not a lawyer. He is founder and president of Students for Fair Admissions and acknowledges starting the group to challenge affirmative action. He has brought other cases of this nature to the court before, and uh, he has been leading this charge for well over a decade. And he didn't get everything he wanted in this decision, but he got a lot. And he's probably pretty happy right now. Nick, a couple of producers here on Post Reports have been spending the week down in front of the Supreme Court uh, ahead of this decision. And I want to play some of the excerpts from the conversations they've had with people who were outside of the court and how they have felt about affirmative action. Uh, my name is Oliver Chi. I'm 16, and I'm a high school sophomore rising junior. Oh, I'm Oliver's mom. Uh, my name is Christine, and uh, we came to East Coast for the college tour. So we really hope our kids uh, can get the equal opportunity to go to the school, uh, the major they want. I think it should be a meritocracy because a lot of people who deserve to get in, who have amazing um, academics, who are leaders in their field, leaders in their school, uh, don't get in because of this uh, discrimination that we see in our country. I am Natasha Daniels. I am a uh, parent of three and a leadership member of Round Rock Black Parents Association and a graduate student at the University of Texas at Austin. To not consider race in admissions is a, it's an intentional step back to Jim Crow era laws. Like, these buildings were built by enslaved people, you know, who have not been able to benefit from the systems that they built. I think not considering that, like, how our nation has come to be is a very dangerous precedent to set. Let's start with the first point of view. The folks who have a direct stake in college admissions, the most personal stake are the applicants themselves and the parents of those applicants. And it's extremely hard to deny the the passion that they feel when they feel that they're being stereotyped, that they're being somehow pigeonholed by the college admission process, that they're being denied this golden opportunity at a wonderful college because of the color of their skin or their ethnic heritage. Those passions run high and they are real. They are at this moment in time, especially running high in the Asian American community. And uh, I think the, the general perception has been floating out there for the past few years that many Asian American applicants are extremely qualified for highly competitive colleges and getting a raw deal. Now that's a perception, but it's very important to add that the Asian American community is not monolithic, that there are many, many, many groups within the Asian American community and many opinions within the Asian American community. And we should hesitate to typecast Asian Americans and say that they're all cheering this ruling because I'm not sure Mm -hmm. that that's the case. Mm-hmm. Now, it, as far as the second point of view goes, the person who's looking at this with worry, they're probably worried not just for how it's going to affect campuses, but also 
how it's going to affect other efforts to diversify America. Right. News, right. Newsrooms, corporate boards, um, other institutions that, you know, have a stake in trying to represent America. Um, they're, yeah. all, they're all going to be wondering, well, gee, if you're, if you're somehow restricting the race and the decision-making process here within these university admissions offices, are you also going to be restricting it in other powerful venues as well? Again, I, I would note, too, again, a nuance here, but it's important that, you know, there's, there's a broad spectrum of opinion. This ignites passions from, from all different directions. Nick, can you just briefly explain how affirmative action actually has worked in higher education? So affirmative action in higher ed really took off in the 1970s and in the late 1960s. It was an outgrowth of the civil rights movement. And there was an effort, an explicit effort, to try to remedy past injustices at schools that recognized that they had excluded black students, for instance, uh, for centuries. And so they started making overt efforts to enroll those students. And as well, I would, I would add Latino students and other minority groups. Mm-hmm. And it was refined by the Supreme Court itself in 1978 when the Supreme Court said, yes, you can consider race. No, you can't have quotas. And that was the start of the conversation that we're now having. Mm-hmm. So, Nick, now that this ruling has come down, as you're looking at the landscape, how might this change the emissions processes at universities across the United States? Who will be affected? Well, the universities themselves are scrambling right now to answer that very question. They're reading the ruling extremely carefully and trying to figure out what on earth is permitted here. And a lot of them don't have the answers. And for us, it's been a, a, a wild kind of several hours here trying to f- figure out what can they say? What will they say? What will they do? And they are coming back to us and saying, you know, it's to be de- determined. After the break, we explore what universities could actually do next. We'll be right back. So, Nick, affirmative action, you know, prior to this decision was not universal in this country, right? What was the current landscape? It's important to know that there are several states, California and Florida among them, that have for many years prohibited the consideration of race in admission to public universities. California voters passed the ban on all consideration of race in college admissions, a practice known as affirmative action, in 1996. The University of California at Berkeley, for example, you can't consider race there when you're choosing students to be admitted. UCLA, you can't do it. University of Michigan, you can't do it. University of Florida, you can't do it. There's a set of of public universities that, that cannot do it because of their own state laws. Now, there's another set of universities that choose not to do it. And they, uh, for whatever reason, will say, 
we don't consider race, and they'll, they'll, they'll make that publicly known. So it's not really accurate to say that this changes everything for every university. There are a, a, a decent subset of universities that um, do not use affirmative action and admissions as we, as we know it right now. I know one place where it has been used is in military academies, right, Nick? Yep. I, I know that you've done a lot of reporting on these institutions. Can you tell us what has happened to the racial makeup of the academies and what could now happen there? Yes, it's a very interesting story. So the U.S. Military Academy at West Point, the U.S. Naval Academy at Annapolis, the U.S. Coast Guard Academy, the U.S. Air Force Academy, they all do use race-conscious admissions. They have used race-conscious admissions. And that has led to, according to the military officers themselves who have been involved in these academies, that has led to positive effects in the racial diversity at those academies. It has raised the number of cadets or midshipmen who identify as persons of color. And that's important because those future officers are going to be leading enlisted forces who are often far more um, forces of color, people of color, than the officer corps itself. And to have a mismatch between the officers and the enlisted demographically is a tricky thing for the military to, to, to maintain cohesion. The Biden administration argued that this was a really a national security issue, that you have to have mm. race-conscious admissions at these academies in order to diversify adequately and effectively the officer corps in, in, in the United States. Now, interestingly, in the ruling that came down from the court, the majority acknowledged that point that the administration raised this issue and that the academies were not parties in this suit. The ruling leaves that issue aside for the academies. We'll see what that means in practice for the academies. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't know yet, but they are being sort of set aside as a, as a slightly separate category of schools. And, and I will find that intriguing to see what happens. Let's talk about what's happened in states that used to have affirmative action and either ended it, limited it. Sure. Uh, because maybe that could tell us about what could happen in these other places now. Um, California is a state where it was banned. What's changed since at the campuses at University of California schools? UC Berkeley and UCLA in particular, the most selective colleges in the UC system, did experience a fairly steep drop in black enrollment and Latino enrollment soon after Proposition 209 took effect in the late 1990s. And they have tried mightily since then to recover ground. And the leaders of the University of California system would say to you, yes, it is possible to recover ground. But they would also say, no, it's impossible to do as well as you need to do without taking race into account. They desperately want to take race into account, and they can't. So to give you an, a, a very concrete example, in California, more than half of the school children who graduate from high school every year are Latino. Mm -hmm. And UC Berkeley and UCLA, the share of, of Latino students in the incoming classes of those schools is nowhere near 50%. 
it's very difficult to kind of make up that ground. So what, what they predict is that there will be, based on their own experience, for the other colleges and universities that are now about to experience this change, they predict there will be a shock, mm. a shock to the system, that there will be a drop-off in underrepresented enrollment in major colleges and universities. And to be very clear, I'm talking about Black and Latino and Native American enrollment. It's not a hopeless situation, but it's hard. So, Nick, looking into the future, what are some of the techniques that other universities could adopt to ensure that there is not a huge drop-off of enrollment among Black and Latino and Native American students? Okay, so let's run through the basics here. Number one, you have to recruit, recruit, recruit. By that, I mean you have to ensure that the people who are potential applicants to your college are as diverse as possible. So this is way before the actual decision-making process. Mm, It's like the pool. Yeah. You have to expand the pool. And sometimes this means, you know, sending your recruiters out to high schools in areas that they haven't visited in, in a long time, if ever. You have to send them mail. Maybe you need to speak to them in a language that their parents would understand um, if they don't speak English as a first language at home. So you have to recruit and and really work aggressively to expand the base of your pool. The next thing you have to do, according to folks who have been in, in this situation, is you you have to read their applications extremely carefully to see what are their life experiences? What are the new things that they're bringing to the university potentially? And by the way, this has all kinds of good effects anyways because, you know, no matter what race the person is, if you're reading carefully and closely and holistically, yeah, you're probably making better decisions. It's hard to do when you've got thousands and thousands and thousands of applicants, but it, it can be done. Then uh, you also have to think hard about financial aid. You have to think hard about what's known as yield, which is the efforts you make to get students who have been offered admission to actually enroll. And that can be a challenge sometimes with underrepresented students. You know, if they see a university that doesn't appear to reflect them, then Mm -hmm. maybe they might not be keen to accept that offer. So you have to work extra hard to get that. Then finally, I think, You have to work hard to make your campus as accepting and and as livable and as embracing and tolerant as possible of of folks from all backgrounds so that when they actually do get to campus, they'll have a great experience and they'll relay that to, you know, their friends, their family members, their community networks, and you grow that way. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. So... Say a student is applying to UC Berkeley or, you know, University of Michigan, and then they talk about their life experience growing up as being Black in the United States or Latino. Um, How is that going to play out? Can they still do that? The ruling says very clearly that what students write in their essays can be considered fairly and openly by the admissions officers in the colleges. However, it does, the ruling does point out that context matters and that the, the description of 
the racial background fitting into the, a particular aspect of a student's life story needs to take into account that particular aspect of the student's life. It's not just that a student happens to be, let's say, Latino and has worked for um, you know, Latino justice and civil rights in a certain arena as a student. It's that work that matters to the court, not the fact that the student is Latino, if, if, you, if you follow me. So there is, a, there is a distinction there that the court majority was trying to make. And the reason they were trying to make that distinction is that they didn't want colleges to have a backdoor way to try to recreate the old system. And Nick, when it comes to racial dynamics at universities, what about legacy admissions? Where does that come into play? Legacy admissions is going to be on the chopping block here. You can you can see it coming. There is a is a movement already to limit what's known as sort of legacy preference and by this we mean if your dad or your mom graduated from that college or university, you note that on your application and you get a plus potentially. So this legacy preference very often is a preference that benefits white students. So I think legacy admissions will be challenged at many places, and colleges are going to have some hard decisions about whether to get rid of it. Some already have. Johns Hopkins has. Amherst College has. MIT has. But a hard question they'll have to answer is to their alumni of color who say, wait a minute, why are you getting rid of a legacy admissions now that I'm an alumnus? Right. That's really fascinating. So, Nick, we've been mostly talking about competitive schools. Will this ruling impact most people trying to go to college? Ah, so here you have to realize that we have in some ways a tiered system of higher education in America. There's the super selective schools that have microscopic admission rates. There's the pretty selective schools that have pretty selective admission rates. And then there's schools that admit more than half their students or almost all of their applicants. Um, and so they all have different effects here. For those schools that admit most of their applicants, this decision is not much of an effect. For those schools that are super duper selective, this decision will have a major effect. For those schools that are in between, the effect will be ranging from modest to significant. Mm. Wow. Nick, beyond higher education, what are the other ripple effects from this ruling? What are the questions that you are encountering? You know, I was talking to the outgoing president of Columbia University. His name is Lee Bollinger, and his name happens to be on one of the previous presidents, Grutter v. Bollinger, because he was president of the University of Michigan 25 years ago. And Lee said that he thinks this is historic for a variety of reasons, including the fact that the decision will stretch beyond campuses. This is, in his view, you know, the justices saying, we don't trust higher education anymore to do this. And it's also, in his view, the justices declaring that this is the end of an era. This is an, the end, in his view, of an era of civil rights. And um, quite literally, if the door has closed on this kind of racial consideration and the justices are saying it's time to turn the page, you have to kind of stop and think, well, 
if it's applicable in college admissions, will it be applicable as well in other aspects of American life? And I think this is going to reverberate. Well, Nick, thank you so much for joining us and explaining what could come next. You bet. Nick Anderson covers higher education for The Post. This week, the conservative Supreme Court handed down another momentous decision that affects higher education. It rejected President Biden's roughly $400 billion student loan forgiveness plan. The vote was 6-3. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Alana Gordon, with help from Tanya Chavla and Jordan Marie Smith. It was edited by Monica Campbell and mixed by Sean Carter. Our team includes Maggie Penman, Rena Flores, Ted Muldoon, Martine Powers, Monica Campbell, Eliza Dennis, Alana Gordon, Ariel Plotnick, Arjun Singh, Jordan Marie Smith, Rennie Svernovsky, Sabi Robinson, Emma Talkoff, Sean Carter, and Renita Jablonski. Our intern is Tanya Chavla. We also want to take a moment today to say another name, Cameron Barr. He is the senior managing editor at The Washington Post, and he just retired. Cameron has had a hand in some of our audio team's most important work over the years, and he's always declined to be included in our credits. But we wanted to make sure to get him in today. I'm Elahe Izadi. It's a long weekend, so we'll be back Wednesday with more stories from The Washington Post.